This is Allison Carter, Occupational Therapist with the Milestones Podcast. This is episode 99. Today we'll be doing a question and answer show. There have been several emails lately from listeners who have questions for me, so I thought I would take the time in this episode to go through some of those questions and general topics that have been brought up to me lately. Before I get started with these, let me remind you that you can support this show by doing a couple of different things. One of them is by purchasing your CEUs of this show on my website at mymidwesttherapy.com. Not only does that help me out, but you also get the benefit of completing some of your license requirements. Look for the yellow Add to Cart buttons under Specific Episodes. You can also help by doing your online shopping using one of my Amazon links on my website. If you click on any of the Amazon items that I have posted, they will also take you to Amazon directly, where you can then do any of your regular Amazon shopping. You do not have to purchase the item that you clicked on in order to get me the benefit. Finally, become a Patreon member and you will receive additional member-only benefits by joining. You can click the Patreon button on my website or just go to patreon.com and search Milestones Podcast. Having said that, I would like to take this time to say thank you to Brittany Elson for joining me on Patreon this last month. I really appreciate your support. It does help me directly so I can continue bringing everyone that listens more and more content through this show. Moving on to the topics for today. I have been getting quite a few emails lately with questions and comments regarding different early intervention topics. So I wanted to use this episode to discuss the topics with everyone. The first question stems from a conversation that I had with Jamie, an OT in San Diego. Like me, she's an OT that is focused on home-based early intervention services. Many of us start out contracting with our local state or regional infant and toddler program. However, that works in your specific area. For me, as you know, I contract with the state of Missouri's infant and toddler program. This means that I receive referrals from the service coordinators when there is a need for OT services in my area. I bill for my services through their program based on an authorization under an IFSP or Individualized Family Service Plan. This is similar to the IEP if you are more familiar with those but the IFSP applies to ages birth to three years. Her question for me was basically, what do I need to do to be able to see kids on my own and build the families directly? For those of you who are in this situation, you may or may not have considered doing this yourself. The short, simple answer is, you just start doing it. The longer, more detailed answer is, you just start doing it but make sure you've handled all of the paperwork that you need to keep track of the income from this. Many people are able to set this up on their own with some research into their state and federal processes. Other people use an accountant to make sure they have everything covered. But back to the simple answer of just start doing it. The easiest way to get started with this is usually with the families that you are currently working with in the infant and toddler program. Once they turn three, 
if they are still receiving services through infant and toddler at that time, they will transition to their local school district to continue with therapy if they qualify. However, there are many things that can happen at that time when the child turns three. One thing is they might qualify for the school district and move on to receive the services at school, ECSC or Early Childhood Special Education. And for some families, this is acceptable and meets their needs. But for some families, they really want to continue receiving services in the home because they still have concerns with their child's health and development at home. Or they don't qualify for the school services, but the family continues to have their own concerns at home. This is where you come in, or I should say continue to come in handy for them. Some people will ask you if you can continue working with them, and other times you will have to be the one to say to the family that you could continue working with them after their child turns three. But it will have to be either out of pocket or through their health insurance if you are a provider for their specific insurance. If you are not a provider with any insurance companies, then the only option is for them to pay you out of pocket. In the meantime, you can begin to work on becoming a provider for their insurance company and possibly any other local insurance companies as well as Medicaid. The process will be different for each one, so it is a matter of contacting them and asking how to apply to become a provider. I will tell you the process usually takes a while to complete, so don't plan on getting it done right away. For some reason, and I really don't know why this is, but I have found that there are not a lot of therapists who are willing to provide in-home services privately, especially for ages three and up. The zero to three kids are mostly covered by the infant and toddler programs. The exception is if they don't qualify for those programs or if they qualify for the program, but not for your type of service. In this case, you could still provide services for those kids on your own privately. Beyond the zero to three kids and the three-year-olds transitioning out of infant and toddler services, you can provide services for any age child above three also. These opportunities will come from you advertising for yourself and possibly referrals from other therapists that you might know. So my advice for you is to get started right away. Start letting the families that you currently work with and other therapists you work with know that you are able to continue seeing those clients in the home even after they turn three. Come up with a reasonable price based on the cost of services in your area and get started. Make sure you keep track of the income and consult with an accountant on how to account for and pay the taxes in on that income. Otherwise, the rest involves paperwork and logistic details. And Jamie, if you're listening, I would love an email update on how everything is going. The next topic comes from Rebecca in New York City. She wanted me to talk about feeding strategies with kids in pre-K, which is the age that she mainly works with. She also had a question about the Amazon links on my website, and I wanted to clarify this for everybody. If you are accessing my website from your mobile phone or tablet, 
The easiest way to find the Amazon links is to click on the words Amazon items, which is at the very top of the page in the black area just underneath the main picture. After you click on Amazon items, it will take you to a page on my website where all of the Amazon items that I've posted on there will be listed. So you can click on the picture of the first item that you come to, and this will redirect you to Amazon where you can do your regular shopping from there. If you're accessing my website from your computer or laptop, just underneath the main picture at the top of the page, on the right-hand side, you should see two different boxes for Amazon. Right now, I have one that's a little bigger than the other, and the bigger one is kind of flashing, so it should catch your attention. You can click on either one of those boxes, and they will take you to Amazon also. Um, another less obvious way is under each podcast episode listing, which I call the show notes. You will see a short description of that episode. And just below that, you will see in blue letters, Amazon affiliate link. You can click on those words and it will also take you to Amazon. So hopefully this helps anyone who has been looking for those links. As for the pre-K feeding question... In pre-K, we're talking about generally ages three to five years old in the early childhood setting. This age and setting are quite a bit different than what I usually talk about with the zero to three age group. For one, because they are a little older, and secondly, because they are in a school setting rather than a home setting. One of the biggest differences being in the school setting versus the home setting is that the parents or the guardians are not there with you during therapy sessions. In home feeding sessions, we have the advantage of working directly with the family and we are able to consult with them in the moment regarding our recommendations for safe feeding strategies. In this situation, parents make decisions on the spot about how they want to proceed with the feedings. In the school-age setting, we have to look at it quite differently. First of all, the potential liability increases. If you're working with a student on feeding issues, there needs to be a goal in their IEP that states this. And as I'm going through this in my mind right now, I'm realizing that this topic can actually fill an entire episode of this podcast. So I'm going to save the details for this part now and just talk generally about feeding in the pre-K setting for today. I will put all the details together for another episode on all the rest of this topic. Generally speaking, I know there are a lot of OTs and SLPs who work in schools that don't have experience with feeding therapy. I would highly encourage those of you who don't have a lot of experience or training in feeding therapy to go out and get it. One thing about pre-K in my experience, and it may be different where you live, but the kids around here are only in school for about three and a half hours per day, four days a week. There are some exceptions to this, but this is generally the rule. Because of this, the kids usually only eat one snack while they're at school. They eat breakfast at home before coming to school in the morning session, and then they eat lunch after they leave school. And in the afternoon session, they eat lunch before coming to preschool. 
Now, my guess is that Rebecca was probably looking for sensory feeding strategies with this age, since that's usually what I talk about when I'm talking about the zero to three ages and, and food play. In the school setting, we can't really do a lot of messy food play where we are encouraging the child to get food all over their hands and face like I normally do at home. But we can offer a variety of tactile sensory play activities. Many preschool teachers have a sensory table in their rooms already. You can provide suggestions to those teachers based on the sensory needs of the students in their classroom that you work with. Not only with types of objects to put in their sensory bins, but also for things like art activities and other activities they do during the day. For example, when they do an art activity that involves using glue, having the paras and teachers look for ways to allow the kids to touch the glue in some way as part of the activity. A lot of times, kids with tactile sensitivities will shy away from the art activities that involve messy things like glue and paint, but even sometimes objects that have a different look to them like feathers. Encouraging these teachers and paras to include the kiddos that want to try and avoid those activities is essential, even if it means just sitting at the table and watching while the other kids do the activity. If that's as much as they can tolerate, at least being able to watch the other kids interact with the objects, and of course trying to find ways to get the child involved in some way, maybe allowing them to use a paintbrush or a Q-tip instead of their fingers for painting or gluing or have them clean up by placing three feathers into the container. Hopefully this type of activity is already going on in the preschool rooms naturally, but it doesn't hurt to point out if one of your students could specifically benefit from participating. This is one of the best strategies because the chance of these activities happening more often or hopefully on a daily basis will give the child more exposure to the different textures. They won't just get it when you see them for their 15-minute session twice a week or whatever it is. Of course, any time that you can be in the classroom during one of these activities would be ideal, so you can model how to work with the child, and you can ensure that the child is getting some exposure at least once that day in their classroom environment. Also, some kids really benefit from having peer models who are doing the same activity as they are. If they see their friends doing it, they may be more likely to do it too. Another option would be for you to be in the classroom during snack time, especially if the snack is something potentially messy, like applesauce or yogurt or something like that. This is a good time for you to observe what the child does with this type of food. If it is something they do not eat, you can still have them interact with it by scooping it from one container to another before they can be done with it. If they will eat it, but are so careful to avoid getting any on their hands or face, you can provide opportunities for them to experience how it feels on their hands and face incidentally while they are eating. This may happen naturally when they are trying to use a spoon to scoop it out on their own, and some of it spills or accidentally gets on the handle of the spoon or on their table, or their hand may actually touch it. Or it may happen naturally, quote-unquote naturally, by you accidentally spilling some on the table 
or getting some on the handle of the spoon. And the child gets it on their hand or fingers or arm while they're trying to scoop another bite. If possible, I try to ignore that it's on their arm, so when they notice, they do not get a reaction from me other than a reaction that says something like, yeah, I see it too. And I might say, well, you can use your tongue to lick it off or just use a napkin to wipe it. I try to give it only a minimal amount of attention at the most and try to change the subject or redirect their attention to something else, like helping them get back to scooping more with the spoon or having a drink of their water or whatever else might distract them from getting upset about the food on their hand or arm if they're a child that would get upset about it. This is a nice opportunity to point your attention in the direction of some of the other kids who may also be sitting close by having the same snack. There are usually some good models for kids in these classrooms, ones that will eat the food and get messy and enjoy every minute of it, even if or when it gets all over around their mouth and they may even have some hanging off their chin. Their chin. Chances are, if they get some on their hands, they will automatically lick it off or attempt to wipe it with their napkin. If this happens, I try to compliment them on doing it and talk about it in a positive and encouraging way. I might say something like, I like how you were able to clean the food off your fingers by licking it off or by wiping it with your napkin. Then also make sure to praise the child that you are working with for something they are doing also. It might be something... Like, I like how you are using a spoon to eat your yogurt, or I saw how you were holding your cup by yourself and getting a drink of water, or whatever you can see them doing that you can speak positively about. If possible, you may try placing a mirror on the table during snack time. This can help the child watch themselves, uh, watch themselves take bites and eat the snacks. Some kiddos respond really well to having a mirror and may actually eat more than they would otherwise because they can see their own face and mouth while eating. It's also sometimes just kind of fun to be able to watch yourself, and it really might help them find their mouth with the spoon if they're having trouble with that. Depending on their oral sensory needs, it may be beneficial to incorporate a chewy tube or some other type of oral motor device to help wake their mouth up or stimulate their lips, tongue, and teeth to prepare for chewing and swallowing. Consider their seating position at the table. Make sure they have any accommodations that might help them sit in the chair better or reach the table to eat their food. Might be a specific chair that 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 child uses every time they're at the table. Um, You might have to adapt the chair to to fit them better or have a footstool underneath their feet to help them be be stable. Help them basically just be as supported as necessary so they can safely reach the food and eat it without falling out of the chair or slumping down in their seats. In addition to the messy foods, another piece of the snacks or meals that we can help with is teaching them how to open the packaging to access their snacks. Helping them learn to open the cracker packages or Ziploc baggies or cereal bar packages or whatever package might be holding their food. In preschool, the teachers and paras are usually readily available to help the kids open their packages, although sometimes they just, without thinking about it, go ahead and open it for the kids, 
And hopefully you can suggest that they allow the kids to try and open the packages for themselves. And if they need help, the teachers and the parents can work with the kids as needed to practice figuring out how to open them. And they may just, you know, tear a little piece of it and then have them try to tear it the rest of the way or whatever it is that they're trying to open. Of course, you can always work on this individually with the kids by practicing tearing paper for an art, pro- uh, art project or practicing opening baggies to access the art or the OT activity supplies that you'll be working with that day. It could be that you're going to be doing something with blocks. You can set this up ahead of time by putting the blocks in a baggie so they will be able to practice opening it to get the blocks out. So it's more of like a functional activity um, to get the pieces for the activity that you're going to be working on. Um, You can also do this with puzzle pieces, pegs, crayons, you know, so many things that we use that have pieces. And this would also be an excellent activity for the parents to do at home with the kids. So communicating that to the parents is a really good idea. Um, They can practice opening the snack packages at home as well and even practice using baggies or the Tupperware containers that they may end up using to send their lunch in eventually. Other ideas involve scooping and pouring and using spoons, cups, bowls, or whatever you can come up with to scoop, dump, and pour. Um, Things like beans, rice, and water beads are really good to work on with um, those activities. Or whatever else might be in the preschool sensory tables at the time. Also, hand strengthening and fine motor or bilateral control activities such as Play-Doh, Therapeutic, tongs, scissors, squeezing sponges with water, pinching clothespins, stringing beads or pasta, zillions of other ways to get these things done. I'm going to stop here for today because I've managed to ramble on for quite a bit, but actually um, would love to hear from you guys if you have some suggestions to go along with the topic of feeding with ECSE or preschool-aged children, um, things that I talked about that you would like to expand on, or if you have other things that I didn't mention, I would love to hear about them. And I can share those with everyone else through my website and through the the next episode as a follow-up. You can send me an email at allison at mymidwesttherapy.com. I would love to hear from you. And thank you so much for listening and have a great day.